We're in John chapter 3, and because the chapter and verse divisions in our Bible are not inspired by God, they've been added by man, I believe a better start to the chapter would have been at the end of chapter 2. So let's actually begin in John chapter 2 and verse 23. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray together. Lord, unveil Jesus Christ to us through the ministry of the Word of God. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. May I see the hands of those who like eating liver? Keep your hands up just for a moment. If you saw there was a special price going for a plate of liver and onions, it would make your day, right? May I now see the hands of those who say you couldn't eat liver and onions no matter what the price? Mm -hmm. You hate liver with a vengeance, even though you think of it uh, and only think of it, it actually, the thought of it makes you feel sick. Can I see your hands? Okay, right. Now, if you walked into a restaurant and had uh, 20 different meals available to you on the menu, liver and onions being one of them, those who just raised their hands, would it be true to say you would 
Never choose liver. Can I see your hands? Yeah, yeah, you'd never choose it. You see, we are not robots. We are volitional creatures. We make choices. We make choices every day. But we make choices due to inclinations and affections of the heart. With your current inclination against liver and onions, you'd never choose it. Here's what we need to understand about the human condition. Our choices are determined by the strongest, the strongest inclination of the heart at the moment of choice. Let me say that again. Each word is significant. Our choices are determined by the strongest inclination of the heart at the moment of choice. When the choice was made, the choice was your most pressing desire, your strongest desire at that moment. Now, you might make a decision, you might make a choice and immediately regret the choice that you made. You ever heard of buyer's remorse? You bought the thing, you get it home and then you have regret. I know I shouldn't have bought it. That's all very true, but at the time you bought it, your strongest inclination was to buy it. You wanted it rather than to go without it. That's why you bought it. Or else it was an act of insanity. Here's the point. We always do what we most want to do at the moment of choice. Oh, no, 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 no. Someone says, I, rem I remember in my teenage years, going into my 20s, Buying a car for, it's a used car, for $3,000, I didn't want to pay more than $2,000. All right, well, think about that. Even then, it's still the case. The asking price was $3,000, and your strongest inclination at the moment of that choice was to part with the $3,000 rather than go without the car. You might have been reluctant, but your strongest desire was to buy the car or else you wouldn't have bought it. Hmm. Well, um, I remember hearing of someone, and uh, actually it was me, they say, that um, I was walking down the street in New York and someone comes up to me with a gun and says, your wallet or your life. Well, think that through. In that situation, the mugger has reduced your options to two. He's reduced your choices to two. Stay alive or hand over your wallet. Now, some would say in that scenario, take it. I, I want to live. Just get out of here. Go. But there are others who might say, I'm not handing you my wallet. You'd have to kill me first over my dead body. All right. Now, that way, you actually might lose your life and your wallet. But you see, even in that scenario, your desire to live is greater than your desire to hold on to the wallet, and it all stands. Face with a gun to your head, choice is reduced to two. It's not what you woke up in the morning thinking, this is what I want to do with my wallet. I want to give it to a stranger this morning. But you did it when you were forced into that scenario because of the desire of your heart. Again, your choices, my choices are determined by our strongest inclination at the moment of choice. Now, I say all that for a reason. You're saying, I'm glad. I'm, I'm glad there's a reason. 
If you're in the kingdom of God, how come? If you've repented of sin, and if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, how come you did that? You repented. Now, God doesn't repent for you. You repent. You put your faith in Christ. No one does that for you. Now, the Bible's answer as to why you made that choice, why you repented, why you chose Jesus in that sense, is because of a birth. You entered the kingdom of God because of God's activity, and get this, he changed the disposition of your heart. He gave you a new heart that wanted him, which is why you came freely and willingly to Christ. Jesus couldn't be more clear about this. Nor could Paul, nor could Luke, nor could, nor could John, nor could, in the Old Testament, Ezekiel. It's the teaching of the Bible. God does major heart surgery, actually a heart transplant, on people, giving them new hearts before they can enter the kingdom of God. That's the clear teaching of Jesus. So, although it's you that put your faith in Christ to be saved, your faith is a divine gift. Ephesians chapter 2 puts it this way, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We're not saved by good works. We're saved for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Don't miss the point of verse 8. The grace, the salvation, and the faith, all of it is the gift of God. All of it. Your faith is not your contribution to your salvation. Otherwise, you've got a little bit of glory for yourself. Lord, you did most of it, but um, how can I say this humbly? I brought the faith. No, even the faith you have is God's gift. Philippians 1.29, For it's been granted, notice that word, For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Because of the passage, we tend to focus on the suffering. God grants us uh, the gift of suffering. But don't forget the other part of the verse. It says God grants us to believe in him. God gives it. It's in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus, the author, the founder, and the perfecter of our faith. If there's a book, there's an author. If there's faith, there's an author for your faith. And it wasn't you. He wrote the book on your faith. Saving faith is not something that you were born with. It's something you were born again with. The new birth, being born again, can be defined this way. Others have done it. The life of God in the soul of a man. It's not there by our inheritance from Adam. It's there by our relationship with the new Adam, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit, he puts the life of God in the soul. Here's something that is uh, very, very vital that we grasp. And again, we're going to see it in our Bibles. It's a technical phrase, but once you get it, it's, uh, it opens up so much of your understanding of, of how much glory to give to God. 
and that's this. Three words. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration, that's the new birth. Generate means to make alive. Regenerate means to make alive again. Regeneration precedes, comes before faith. Many in our world believe that you make a choice, you make a decision, you put your faith in Christ, then you will be born again. That's opposite to what Jesus is going to tell us in John chapter 3. We are not able to put faith in Christ. Here's why. Because we don't want to. We may have an interest in God, we may not. We may have a religious interest, we may not. What we don't have in Adam is a love for the true God and for his gospel. And so God has to take out the heart of stone. By the way, hearts of stone have no pulse. And put in a heart of flesh that beats to know Christ, and that happens in terms of sequence before we have faith. I translate faith or define it this way. Faith is the gift of a loyal heart devotion to the truth claims of Christ and his gospel. Let me say that again. Faith is the gift of a loyal heart devotion. Not a temporary interest, but a loyal heart devotion to the truth claims of Christ and his gospel. Let me ask you again. How come you're in the kingdom? Well, I repented. I believed. I understand. Why? Why did you and not your neighbor who heard the same message, perhaps. Maybe you've got an identical twin raised in the same house. These things happen. One hears the gospel and responds in repentance and faith. One walks away and never goes near a church again. Well, if it's because one was more humble and appliable and appreciative by nature. They've got something to boast about. But the Bible says that both were born dead in sin in Adam. The only reason why any of us will be around the throne of God is God has done a transplant on our hearts and given us what we didn't have by human nature. Praise God. Have you ever thanked God for your faith? You read the New Testament, that's what Paul does. I thank God for you and for your faith in Jesus. He gets it right. The Bible gets it right. All right, let's go to John chapter 2. That's the introduction. Some of you are scared. Rightfully so. John chapter 2, verse 23. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. We're going to see that they were professing faith, just like in John chapter 6, but were not true believers. There are many professors of faith, but we're not saved by the mere profession of faith, but by the possession of faith. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let me say it in three words. He gets us. Notice. Verse 25. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Now verse 1. Now there was a man 
of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a man. God knew, Jesus knew what was in his heart. We're told that he was a Pharisee. It's a word that means separatist. He was separated, separated unto God's law. We're told in history there are around 6,000 Pharisees in Israel at the time that this conversation took place. We're then told Nicodemus was a ruler of the Jews. Do you see that in verse 1? A ruler of the Jews. So not only a Pharisee, but a ruling Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews. That would mean he was a member of the Sanhedrin. He had a position of true religious prestige, true religious power. To be in the Sanhedrin meant you were a ruler amongst the Pharisees. Verse 11 in our passage will inform us that he is more than simply in the Sanhedrin. He's the leader. He is the teacher. Jesus said, you are the, not a, the teacher of Israel. In other words, if there's a pyramid of uh, religious authority, Nicodemus is right at the top. He's at the pinnacle of the mountain. He's at the top of the pyramid. Verse 2, this man, now this word man now, is the fourth time we encounter the word man in these three verses. I think that's significant. This man came to Jesus by night. Now, reams of paper has been written about this, much of it speculation. He obviously, they think, say, well, he didn't want to be seen by others. That's why he came at night. There's an alternative, and that is he had a very long day as a ruling member of the Pharisee, and the only time he was available and could connect with Jesus was at night rather than the daytime. I, I believe this about our uh, interpretation of Scripture. Let's only go by what the text says rather than read into the text. Oh, he came at night. Obviously, he was scared to be seen in the day. You don't know that. All we're told is he came at night. Can that be enough? All right, he came at night. His name's Nicodemus. We could shorten his name to Nick. This was Nick at night. Now, maybe it was because Nicodemus didn't want to be seen by others, could have had a hard day, we're not told, and I don't want to speculate. But he came to Jesus by night, that's the setting, and said to him, Nicodemus said to Jesus, Rabbi, which means he acknowledged him as a teacher, which was again amazing in that Jesus never went to rabbi school. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What we see here is good theology on display. Jesus performed indisputable miracles, and Nicodemus knew it. And he realized that must have, those things, these things must have a divine source. No one can do these kind of signs. No one can do signs of this magnitude unless God is with him. With him. This was no sleight of hand. This was no magician's uh, trick. This was real people receiving real miracles, real signs, real wonders. And Nicodemus understood God is the only person, God is the only source of this. Verse 3, Jesus answered him. Now what is interesting to me is Nicodemus hadn't raised a question but Jesus was answering him. And that's because Jesus knows all men and he knew what was the cry of his heart. 
He may not have spoken it, but Jesus knew his heart. And the question was, how do I get in the kingdom of God? And Jesus goes about the task of answering that question. Jesus answered him. And you know how in preaching someone might preach and someone in the congregation might give encouragement to the preacher by saying, Amen. That means that's it. That's right. That's the way it is. That's true. And that's at the end of a statement. You say something and they say, Amen. Jesus starts with the amens. Literally, it's amen, amen, I say to you. And we have the English expression, amen. In other words, this is true, this is true. And usually when you see this, just about everything he's about to say might be rejected by the hearer. But this is true anyway. You see, truth is not determined by how many people believe it. It's determined by whether it corresponds to reality. And Jesus said, truly, truly, O King James, verily, verily, I say to you. In other words, whether you believe this or not, whether you reject this or not, this is the way it is. Amen, amen, I say to you. Amen, amen. Can you say amen? Amen. What did he say? Truly, truly, I say to you. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, these are clear words from Jesus. This is not ambiguous. This is not, uh, well, you could take it this way or you could take it that way. No, Jesus is making it very, very clear. Unless someone is born again, they cannot see something. They are unable to see. The word cannot is not a word of permission. It's a word of ability. Unless one is born again, unless a man is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless regeneration happens, note the cannot, that word cannot speaks of inability. Would you agree? It speaks of inability. He's unable to do something. He cannot see. Keep your place in John 3. Go to John 6 for a moment. Verse 37. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. It's the giving of the Father to the Son that determines who in time will come to the Son. We have to come to Christ to be saved, and all that the Father gives to Jesus will come. Go to verse 44. No one can, no one is able. Again, speaking of inability. No one can come. All right, so we all understand you must come to Christ to be saved, but no one can come, according to Jesus. Jesus said, no one has the ability to come to me. If that was the end of the statement, all would be lost. Everyone would be lost. You need to come, but you can't. Wow, what a message. It's a universal, negative, no one's left out. No one. Universal negative, not everyone can, it's no one can. It's a universal negative. No one can come to me. Thankfully, the verse has more words in the sentence. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, <clears throat> and I'll raise him up on the last day. Don't forget that last clause. What's, again, amazing in this verse is Jesus makes it clear, <clears throat> speaking to unsaved people, you can't come to me unless the Father draws. And by the way, those he draws 
not only come to me, but are raised up on the last day. They don't come for a while and then fall away. No, God has the power to draw people to Christ in such a magnitude way, a major way, a mega way. He overcomes their resistance to come. They not only come, but are kept so that they're raised up on the last day, which is a definition of eternal life. They come, and when they come, all of them who are drawn in this way come and are raised up on the last day. They have eternal life. Go to verse 65. He repeats it. He said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me. Same words. Unless it's, what does it say? Granted him by the Father. Back to John chapter 3. Jesus said... Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. No one is born a Christian. We cannot see. We are blind to something. Blind to what? Well, according to Jesus' words, the kingdom of God. God's right of rulership and the desire to come under the rule of Christ We're blind to the beauty of it, blind to the glory of it, blind to the kingdom of God. This, by the way, is totally consistent. Our Bibles are consistent with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. You remember in verse 3 he said, or wrote, even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. A veil is something that goes over the eyes. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. I'm going there simply to make reference to the fact that what Jesus said and what Paul said coincide. There's no contradiction. We're blind outside of the act of God. To be blind is more than being short-sighted. Blind people cannot see. The hymn writer got it right. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. What do you see? You see Christ. You see the treasure of the gospel. You were blind to it by natural birth, but now you see the beauty of Christ because you've been born again. Hasn't that been your experience as you share the gospel with people and you say, well, this is the most wonderful thing, and they might say, that's great for you, I just don't see it. That's why they need more than a new set of spectacles. They need the miracle of new eyes. That takes the work of the Holy Spirit. We can bring the gospel to the ear. Only the Holy Spirit can bring it to the heart. That's our condition, naturally inherited from Adam. We're alive physically, but dead spiritually. Paul writing to the Ephesians, the Christians in Ephesus, in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, writes, And you, Christians, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. I've looked that word up, dead, and uh, in the original language, and it means dead. We're born DOA, we're born dead on arrival, alive physically but dead spiritually. We all need new birth if we're going to enter the kingdom of God. We're not born into the kingdom of God, we're born again into the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter. That's our condition. 
with the walking dead. A woman came to George Whitfield. He was a notorious, wonderful preacher, one of my favorite preachers in all church history. He had been preaching on the new birth everywhere he had gone, and the lady had heard him several times. She came up to him after one of the preaching sermons and said, um, why do you keep preaching, Mr. Whitfield, why do you keep preaching, you must be born again? He answered, dear lady, because you must be born again. Verse 4. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? We could speculate what his heart attitude was in this, or was he simply asking a question? Could it be that he just did not understand? But he was making a crass statement. Of course, once you're born, once you're alive, once you're a full adult male, there's no way you can go back into your mother's womb and be born. What are you talking about? Maybe he was asking a different question. We don't know. But what we have before us is the question. And it was answered by Jesus' words in verse 5. Jesus answered, Amen, Amen. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Again, reams of paper has been written, books have been written about what Jesus meant here, especially when it comes to the phrase born of water. I want to just say this. This has nothing to do with baptism. Now, some people think it's the waters of baptism that's in view. That is what we call eisegesis. That's reading into the text something that's not found in the text. There's nothing about baptism in the text. That's simply a misinterpretation. Jesus was not teaching that you need to be baptized and that's how you're born again. Um, not at all. There's two basic possible meanings of Jesus' words here, born of water and the Spirit. One is this, uh, he was speaking of natural birth versus physical birth, uh, rather than spiritual birth, excuse me. Natural or physical birth rather than spiritual birth. What would lead us to think that could be the case are the words that follow. Context is always very helpful. Because verse 6 says, that which is born of the flesh, which is natural birth, is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, is spiritual. Spiritual birth. So it could well be that what Jesus had in view here is to say this. You not only have to be born again, born, excuse me, you not only have to be born physically to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born spiritually. You must have a spiritual new birth. That could well be in view. And verse 6 could lead us to that conclusion. There is a definite problem with that, is, and that is because we can read these words as 21st century Americans and think, well, the water here is referring to the water of the womb. When a child's about to come, the water breaks and there's a birth that is the result. And yet, I'm not sure that two Jews would have come up with that in the first century. And recognizing this, this is a conversation between first century Jews, two of them. And both of them were steeped in what we call our Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. That leads me to believe that what Jesus is referring to in being born of water and the Spirit is a reference to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. Let's go there for a moment. 
Ezekiel chapter 36. As we read these words, I want to highlight the fact that the words, two words, I will happen over and over and over. And this speaks of God's activity. Ezekiel chapter 36. Here we read in verse 25. Notice the reference to water and a new heart. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you. I think that's what Jesus had in mind. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh. Oh. And give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. And I will deliver you from all your uncleannesses. Again, I asked you to look at that and highlight in your minds the words I will. You find it twice in verse 25, three times in verse 26, once in verse 27, once in verse 28, once again in verse 29. I will, I will, I will, I will. This is God's activity and that's what we see in the new birth. You did not get into the kingdom of God by yourself. It took the activity of God. You were born again, born from above. God gave you new birth, and that meant a new heart with new affections. Back to John chapter 3. Jesus had said, unless new birth takes place, you cannot see. And in verse 5, unless new birth takes place, born of water and the Spirit, you cannot enter. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, if you cannot enter a room, what does it mean? It means you're not yet in it. Oh, that's profound. Write that down. <laughs> we all start outside the kingdom of God and are in desperate need of a new birth. And we need that birth before we can enter it. Verse 6, That which is born of the flesh is flesh, Nicodemus. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, Jesus is using this analogy of birth, and he calls it in verse 12, an earthly thing. I talked about earthly things. And you don't get this? Let me ask you this. What's the analogy about? You and I grasp it. You've been born. How many here, uh, this is a, a test, how many here have been born? <laughs> yeah, pastor, but I wasn't born yesterday. I, I know, I understand that. But you've been born, right? The evidence of the fact you've been born is that you're here, right? What role did you play in your physical birth? Did you vote for it? Did you choose it? What contribution did you make? The answer to both of those questions are none. It was by your birth, was by the choice and will of your parents. So, the new birth is not by your will either. 
It's by God's will. To enter this world, you must first be born. Am I going too fast? (laughs) To enter the kingdom of God, you must first be born again. Regeneration precedes faith. You must be born from above. The flesh can only produce flesh. We're in John 3, go to John 1. Verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him. That's quite a statement. This world is here because of Jesus. Yet the world did not know him. He's speaking of the cosmos. It's here because of Jesus. Yet the world is talking here now about the view of the world, the view of people, world opinion. The world, people of the world, did not know him. He came to his own, a reference to the Jewish people, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, oh, oh, that's activity of man, pastor. That's activity of man. Well, keep reading. I've already affirmed, we do put our faith in him. We do receive him. We do believe in him. But I'm asking the question as to why. But to all who did receive him, activity of man, who believed in his name, activity of man, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, now here's the definition, they're born not of blood, not because of ancestry, not because of the will of the flesh, fleshly energy, exercise of the energy of the flesh, nor of the will of man. It couldn't be more clear. It wasn't man's will that caused anyone to receive him or believe in him. But the reason is, not that they were born of blood, flesh, or will of man, but were born of God. In other words, you see someone receiving Christ, believing on the name of Christ, it's a result of them being born of God. God did it. God gave faith and causes people to receive Christ. Back to John 3. Keep your place there. Go to the right in the New Testament to 1 John. Same author, 1 John and uh, chapter 5. When you see something... Once in scripture, take note, when you see it over and over and over again, God is making something abundantly clear and we should really grab hold of it. First John chapter 5, same author as the Gospel of John, the Apostle John. He writes in chapter 5 verse 1, Everyone, that's an all-inclusive statement, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We'll stop there just for a moment. Read it again. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Isn't that interesting at the end of the verse? It does not say is born of God. It says has been. It's very specific. I make mention of the fact because in the original language, everyone who believes is in a present tense setting, a continuous action. This is not 
someone who says yes to Jesus for a moment and then has no interest. This is someone who goes on believing. So they're believing now and they continue to believe. You and I, if we see someone going on in their faith, going on in their faith in Jesus, here's what the scripture says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Messiah, Christ, has been born. The Greek word is genesanta. It is in the perfect tense. What this refers to is an an action already complete with abiding effects. In other words, illustration. You're witnessing a minor collision in a parking lot between two cars. One car bumps into the other. Before the collision, there are no dents. After the collision, there are dents. And because of the collision, those dents will be there until they are removed. There's an abiding effect of something that has happened. That's what your faith is. It's something you can see now, and if you can see it now, it's because something happened previously. When did the dents come? Before the accident or after? After. Actually, at the time, right? As soon as, there wasn't this 18-second delay. As soon as the car bumped into the other car, there are dents. And if you belong to Christ, there will be heavy dents. Help him, Jesus. He just lost the anointing. Okay, here we go. It means an action already complete with abiding effects. If you believe in Christ and you go on believing in Christ, you have been already born of God. In other words, if you see someone going on believing in Jesus as the Christ, it's evidence of the fact that they've already been born of God. Again, regeneration precedes faith. C.H. Spurgeon commenting on this verse says, You are born again if you believe that Jesus is the Christ. If you are relying upon a crucified Savior, you are assuredly begotten again unto a lively hope. Mystery or no mystery, the new birth is yours if you are a believer. Have you never noticed that the greatest mysteries in the world reveal themselves by the simplest indications? The simplicity and apparent easiness of faith is no reason why I should not regard its existence as an infallible indication of the new birth within. How do we know? How do we know? How know we that the newborn child lives except by its cry? Yet a child's cry. What a simple sound it is. Spurgeon goes on. To believe in Jesus is a better indicator of regeneration than anything else, and in no case did it ever mislead. Faith, here's his conclusion, faith in the living God and his son Jesus Christ is always the result of the new birth and can never exist except in the regenerate. Whoever has faith is a saved man. Verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. This is soteriology 101. This is basics on salvation. It's obvious. You don't know this, Nicodemus. The new birth is, not a nece- is a necessary birth. It's not an optional extra. There's not Christians and then there's born-again Christians. You're either a born-again Christian or you're not a Christian. 
It's essential. It's compulsory. It's required. It's mandatory. It's demanded. You must be born again. Ladies and gentlemen, have you been born again? You'll know it by your affections. What is not there outside of new birth it is, is a desire for the true God and the true gospel. It's a desire for Him. Now, you must be born again. You must be born again. You must, Nicodemus, you must be born again. I want to ask you individually, have you been born again? Knowing that, the necessity of the new birth, we should seek this out immediately. After I bought my first Bible, I bought sometime later my first Christian book. It was by Billy Graham. It was in 1980, 81, I think I bought the book. And it was called How to Be Born Again. It was all about making a decision for Christ. He had a magazine called Decision Magazine, which would sum up his theology. And as greatly as Billy Graham was used, I believe he got it wrong on the subject of the new birth. You get it wrong at the top, ladies and gentlemen, when you're buttoning a shirt. If you get the wrong button in the wrong hole at the top, it's going to be wrong all the way down. And his fundamental problem, here I am more than 40 years later saying, I think he got it wrong on this. Great guy, but he got it wrong on this. He thought you can decide to be born again. If you're not born again, do this and you'll be born again. No, no, no. Jesus didn't do that with Nicodemus. He just said, you must be. And so inherent in that is, well, if you must be, there must be something I can do. I must choose, I must will, and the new birth is not of the human will. We've already read it. The new birth is not a boost from above. It's a birth from above. Now, there's already much mystery you haven't already realized that in this passage, but it gets worse. Let's continue reading. Verse 8. He's just said you must be born again. You'd expect Jesus then to lay it out and say, look, next service, tomorrow, 10 a.m., be here. I'll make an altar call. You walk down the altar call, uh, walk, walk, walk to the front, uh, fill out the card, and uh, you're in. Oh, raise up a hand first, of course. No, uh, you must be born again. Next statement, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Can you imagine Nicodemus? He's just been told, it's imperative you're born again. And the wind blows where it wishes. Now you can struggle with this for 10 years or else just read the text and see Jesus didn't go on to another subject. He's explaining the new birth. He's not now going from as the subject of should women wear hats in church to eschatology and the timing of the second coming. He's not jumping off to other stuff. He says, you must be born again and the wind blows where it wishes. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the point. Jesus teaches unsaved people, Nicodemus here, human depravity. 
the inability to believe outside of the act of God. It's basic truth. This is John chapter 3. This is not obscure. This is not tucked away in some verse in Ezekiel chapter 17 somewhere. No, Nicodemus, you're the teacher in Israel, the teacher. You've got to get this. Salvation is not in your power, it's in God's. It's not under your control, it's in God's. Salvation is at the mercy of God alone. God has to give you a heart transplant, a new heart. He has to sprinkle water on you and put a new spirit within you, a new heart to be given you, to take out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, which allows you to see the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God. Outside of this, again, to quote Paul in Romans, the mindset on the flesh, Romans 8 verse 7, is hostile to God, not indifferent, not neutral. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Strong words. Those who are in the flesh, that's those who are unregenerate, cannot please God. Christian, take the cannots seriously. Unless a man is born again, he cannot enter or see the kingdom of God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Does it please God to come to Christ? Sure it does. You can't do that while you're in the flesh. You must have a new nature. You must be born again. This is not obscure. Those two cannots in Romans 8, 7 and 8 have to be taken seriously. But there's more. 1 Corinthians 2, 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are folly to him. He is not able. He cannot understand them because they're spiritually discerned. Well, pastor, if man cannot enter the kingdom of God outside of new birth, how is it true that man is responsible? Great question. Here's the answer. We're going to close with this. Because the cannot is not because of a physical inability, but a moral one. A moral inability. What do I mean by that? A man sits in his favorite chair. Jesus says, get up, come to me, follow me. But there's a problem. The man tries to obey the call. What we haven't noticed until just now is while he's sitting in the chair, there are ten leather straps tying him to the chair. And as much as he tries to lift himself from the chair, he cannot because of a physical restriction. He cannot break free to get out from the chair. That is what we would call a physical inability. If that was the case, it wouldn't be right for God to condemn someone because of a physical inability. You don't ask someone with no legs to run the 100 meters at the Olympics. They're not able. There's a physical inability. But that's not the situation before us. Here's the Bible reality. The man is sitting in his favorite chair. Jesus says to him, up from the chair, Come, come to me, come follow me. And the man says, actually, I love my chair. I love sitting in my chair. I'm not going to get up and come. I love and prefer my chair. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the issue. We love the chair of sin. 
by nature. We're in John chapter 3. Look at verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness. They loved their chair of sin rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates. They're not neutral. Hates the light. Everyone. Not some. Not 80%. On a bad day, 88%. No, 100%. Everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light. Oh, that's activity of man. Oh, yeah, yeah, but keep reading. So that it may be clearly, clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. He's up from the chair because God did something with his heart. He no longer loves the darkness. He loves the light. The preacher can say, come out from the darkness. Come to the light. Everyone will say, say no until the Holy Spirit goes to work on the word. And by the effectual call, calls him out of darkness. That's what First Peter says. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you with his summons. He gave you in that call a new heart with a loyal love for the truth of God, wanting to come under his rule, the kingdom of God, and wanting Jesus Christ. I remember in May 1980, in what is called the Tin Tabernacle, a little shed in Chester, England, not wanting to be in the service, only there because my dad says you need to go. And I hadn't been to church in many years. I sat in the service not wanting to be there. Suddenly, eight or ten minutes into the service, I was interested. By the time of the sermon, 20 minutes into it, I wanted what he wanted. Jesus became real to me. He stepped off the pages of a dusty book to become the reality that he really is. And I saw him, and I wanted him, and I didn't want it eight minutes before. I didn't want him. When the call was made, it was at that moment, raise your hand, sign the card. I did it all. I just wanted in the kingdom. I wanted to know Jesus. That's their methodology. You don't need the altar call. You just have to repent and believe. But I did repent and I did believe. And now I can look back and understand scripturally the wind blew in that service invisibly, imperceptibly. Maybe it wasn't happening to the person right next to me. But in my heart, God took the word I heard. And glory to God, he took out the heart that didn't want him. I didn't want him, folks. And now I want him. Why? Not because of me, but because of God. God worked. God gave me faith. God gave me the ability to see Jesus Christ. And I willingly entered the kingdom. And 44 years later, I still want him. Why? Because it's a permanent loyalty. Not of me. It's of him. That's the nature of the faith he gave. And he's done the same for you if you're truly born again. You didn't get yourself in. He that began the good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. We love the chair of sin. We love darkness rather than light by nature. And that's where the text takes us. Application. Well, pastor, what if I'm not sure I've been born again? Understand that the new birth takes place by the ministry of the word. Get under the sound of the word whenever you can.
Read your Bible. If the church doors are open, get there. If you know you're going to hear the Word of God, you're going to hear trash, don't go. But if you're going to hear the Word of God, get under the spout where the glory comes out. Because faith comes not by music, not by setting, not by drama teams doing stuff, but by the hearing of the Word of God. If a drama has the Word of God in it, amen. But you're born again, not of incorruptible seed, excuse me, not a corruptible seed, not a perishable seed, but incorruptible seed by the living and the word, uh, abiding Word of God. Faith comes through the means of hearing the Word of God, Amen. the message of Christ. So you're responsible because it's a moral issue. Why would you not want Christ? The only reason is you've not yet seen him. But if God gives you birth from above, you'll see and you'll enter. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonders of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God. A new heart with new affections. If we hate liver, we'll never choose it in a restaurant. And by nature, we'll never want the true Christ and the true gospel. By nature, we don't like some people. One of the evidences of new birth, 1 John 3, 14 says, is we know we have passed out of death into life is because we love the brothers. We've got new birth, we want a treasure in the kingdom. We'll do what you say with our finances, we'll do what you say because we want to come under the rule of God. Lord, help us to see this in every aspect of our life. And those without new birth, would you give them new birth this day? And may we understand that every new birth is a radical birth. Show us Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.